Our first reading for today is from the book of Malachi. We're reading in chapter 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Our second reading is from Luke 1, verses 1 through 25. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theopolis, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, When his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of the Lord, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and they kept making signs, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Christmas, in the way it is celebrated today, has pretty much been hijacked from its covenantal fulfillment understandings. Most of us think of Jesus Christ as the one who brings peace on earth or goodwill towards men, and we think of it in sort of this universal application, that Christ's coming is God's final time in which he's saying, I'm done with Israel, and that's somewhat true, but not in the way that he is unfaithful to the promises made to those who were of true Israel in the midst of the nation. Just like you can be a hypocrite and go to church, so also the nation of Israel had faithful and unfaithful people in it. And the purpose of our time in Advent, as it's been the last few years, and I think will remain for a, a, a few more years from now in this church, is to look at how does Christ fulfill the promises that God made to Israel. And just so you're aware, I'm not talking about the country that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was the prime minister of. That is not the same at all. It's not even the same thing remotely. And and so uh, when we're talking about Israel, we're not talking about the modern nation state. We're not looking for them to be raised up so that God can finally do things on the earth again. Uh, We're primarily looking at the patriarchs, the leaders, the kings, the prophets of old who were given promises. And Jesus Christ comes to fulfill those promises. Before we come to see how Jesus fulfills those promises, we have to look at how the, the one who came before him was announced, prophesied of, and came, and what his role was, and how his role points forward to Christ's role. So as we learn, especially for those who are new of us uh, in celebrating Advent, we must take the time to begin to intentionally learn how to celebrate it well. What we are not after is uh, a blind tradition uh, which doesn't have any connection in the mind nor in the heart. We want to understand our worship both in the mind and then from there also be able to engage in it from the heart. When we say the creeds, I hope you feel some sense of the truth of what you're saying when you say the creeds. Just like when you sing, I hope you, you know, maybe you're singing in faith one day, but the next week or the week after that, maybe you're singing in truth. As in the things which we use to to uh, to worship God, those those portions of Scripture, those songs, uh, these uh, these symbols, they are supposed to be meaningful. It's not supposed to be meaningless. And so it takes time and intention to search out those meanings. And I think that you'll find if you take the time to do it, there will be a rich and valuable tradition there. So last week we were in Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 1, and we saw how God was coming and he was going to destroy the kings of the earth 
and set up his king, that is Jesus Christ, as the Messiah. We saw a symbol that Nebuchadnezzar had seen in a dream in Daniel 2. That symbol was made out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And then we saw how Psalm 2 talks about Christ having a rod of iron by which he smashes the nations that are made out of clay, the nations that are pottery. And the reason why he does so is because they are rejecting his kingship. And so today we're going to see how Christ is actually the one to bring about the judgment of God, not just on the nations, but also on Israel herself. Malachi 4 is the end of a prophecy that God gives, and it's a prophecy against Israel. It's a prophecy against Israel for her covenant faithlessness, and Yahweh demonstrates himself as faithful. And so even in the midst of God's judgment, as we're going to examine here in in Uh, Malachi 4, there's a promise of renewal. The fire which comes that Malachi says will come is going to burn up away the chaff, but he's also going to set on fire those who are truly believers. And so beginning to prepare, uh, we have to take time to look at these scriptures and see how Christ is not just a gift given to the world. He's a gift given to Israel. He is the fulfillment of Yahweh's promise, not only to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3 after the curse, the one who would come and stomp on the serpent's head, but also the one through whom the, the seed that Abraham was, was uh, promised, through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that begins with Israel. So the twofold focus in this season, these next four weeks as we approach Christmas, is to, in mind, in the Word of God, through our songs, through the way that we prepare for Christmas, to re-enter by faith into the waiting that true faithful Israel had in longing for the Messiah. It was a very, very long time, and she had to, those of, those of uh, Israel who were faithful, had to war against those who were faithless. There's this great war, even in the midst of the people of Israel. There's a mixture, and they suffer under that mixture. We have that same waiting. We're not simply waiting for Christ's birth. We're also waiting for Christ's return. And so that aspect of Advent is also there. We're remembering and re-entering into that longing for Christ to come and make the wrong things right. And so we begin to understand the role of Advent. But uh, we are exactly like the continuation of the people of Israel. There's uh, two ways to understand what happens in the scriptures with the judgments that come on Israel. In one way, God does away with Israel and brings about a new people called the church, and that includes some of Israel and also the Gentiles, some of the Gentiles, not all, especially not all in any given year. But there's another way to look at it, as the New Testament apostles say, is that we are the true Jews, right? This is, uh, don't put this on YouTube, you'll get, it'll, it'll get removed real quick. Because what essentially the apostles teach is the one who is a true Jew is a Jew inwardly. And so the church is the continuing fulfillment of the people of God. I have a friend on uh, Facebook. I have more friends on Facebook that are theologians than non-theologian friends. That's what I use Facebook for. Um, and Twitter a little bit, but that's also some computer stuff. But I have this friend on Facebook. His name is Cy Ten Kate, and he is a wonderful person. Uh, he is his, his whole life is evangelistic 
apologetics. He is attempting to reason with atheists, with skeptics, to re-examine their understanding of who God is. And he issued a very provocative statement, and one I think that I should have heard much younger, and so I'm telling it to you. Hopefully, it's at a time in your life where you're ready to hear it. But Saitan uh, Bruggenkate said something that I thought was fascinating. He said, the only true theists, that is, the only ones who believe in God, are actually Christians. Now, that's really offensive to the, to the Jewish and to the, the Muslim. Why is that offensive? Because they believe that they believe in God, right? The problem is that there's only one true God. There are not multiple individual gods. Allah is not a God. The God that the Jews worship is not Trinitarian. And God made it plain that Jesus Christ was equal with the Father. And also by the sending of the Spirit. And the things which Christianity has uh, enriched and expounded upon, this Trinitarian understanding of God excludes those who do not recognize Jesus Christ as being God. It's a very interesting idea. Anyway, all of the amazing promises throughout all of the scripture are fulfilled by this one God as he works with one people. We should see ourselves as the continuation of the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, families in the earth being blessed. We're blessed by Christ. We're the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham was given, and that fulfillment comes through Christ, and it comes primarily at the beginning at Christmas. But I want to make plain, the Christian religion and faith is a real religion. You, you sometimes have a difficulty with this because we've never really seen very, very old people thousands of years. Sometimes we see movies and they're wearing turbans and tunics and riding on camels. But that's very detached. What I want you to imagine is that, or, or come to understand is, our religion is a real religion. These are people, real people, just like you or I, James says, who were given promises. They have real hopes, real dreams, and God works through real people, boots on the ground, if you will. And so these real promises have to have real fulfillments, and they have real fulfillments, as we're going to see in John the Baptist and in Jesus Christ. So many in this nation are faithful, but most were not. And so the, the understanding of that is that Yahweh is going to bring about faithfulness. We're going to see how he does that with the fire that he brings. But our only hope is that if we're going to be sustained, especially in modern, uh, in a postmodern age, in a, in a culture which is in, increasingly apathetic towards God and indeed even hostile toward him, our only hope is if we begin to see God really does fulfill every one of his promises to the letter. He never leaves an aspect unfulfilled. So, with that in mind, we're going to look at this understanding of who John the Baptist is as the one who walks in the spirit and power of Elijah. First, we're going to look at Yahweh's jealousy for Israel, as Malachi shows us in his reading today. We're going to look at a few aspects of it, and we're going to see how Yahweh is promising to bring about a fire that is both judgment and also a purification. So, it's both a judgment and a blessing. It's a curse and a blessing. Luke's purpose for writing his gospel as he makes plain, and that same purpose being for us today. Many of you know the Christmas story, and you know the elementary facts of the faith, but what Luke is intending to say in his introduction is, he longs that the gospel would be a means by which you come to surety. 
of the faith, that you become convinced of the faith. Yes, you believe, but that belief needs to become bedrock. It needs to develop and mature. It, like concrete setting, it needs to mature rightly under the right conditions. And that's what we're going to look at as God demonstrates his fulfillment of his promises. We're going to look at uh, John the Baptist in the context of his parents, their role that they play in this story, and then his mission as it points forward to Christ's specific mission. Again, we need to recapture the vision for what Christmas is. It is not just a time of joy and celebration detached from a very important need. The reason Christmas, as we're going to see these next few weeks, the reason Christmas is so great, the reason it's worth celebrating for a whole month, is that it meets a need, a need that otherwise cannot be met. That's what the message of preparing for Advent is all about. So, Yahweh is jealous. Uh, Think of a, a man hearing that his wife is under attack. He rushes to the scene, right? He doesn't he doesn't keep checking his email. He doesn't dally. He doesn't dilly. He, he runs at the, uh, the event. Yahweh sees his bride, and she is full of mixture. She is conflicted. She's serving other gods. She's not obeying his laws, and Yahweh is jealous, and so he's going to come, and he's going to come and bring a fire. His fiery anger is extremely hot. Yahweh is jealous because of his great love. Love and anger are also are actually more closely related than love and just mere toleration of difference or apathy concerning waywardness. Yahweh wishes to purify his people because he loves them. And he also loves them in a way that you or I, maybe it may be hard for us to understand, but he loves them and he wants what is best for them. Yahweh knows that if Israel continues to run after these other gods, she'll actually be destroyed. And this fits with the Christian vision of life. We believe that sin destroys us. And so Yahweh's love, and yet at the same time, being it manifested as wrath and anger against sin, is actually one and the same. There's no division in God. And so Yahweh comes, and he wants to bring a fire to purify Israel. Fire has this amazing effect where it burns up anything that can be consumed and it leaves behind those things which cannot. This is what Yahweh is intending and wanting to do. And so he gives a prophecy through Malachi. Against those who break faith with Yahweh, he's coming and his anger is very, very hot. He's going to burn them away like the chaff. The chaff is an old-fashioned word for that part of the wheat that doesn't become bread, right? You don't make loaves out of chaff. You, you use that for fire, maybe heating your home or, or burning something or having a bonfire. You use the, the kernel of the grain for making bread. And what Yahweh wants from his people is he wants a bread. He wants a, a people who are loafy, not loafers, but loafy, <laughs> right? He wants a people who become something, who become something under his care and guidance, who become a true loaf. And this is what We see over and over again in the Old Testament when Yahweh is trying to show Israel that he is the source of their life. He's the one who brings about maturity, growth, and life out of Israel. And that theme is going to continue to come up, especially as we get to Zechariah and Elizabeth. 
the dead portions of this tree are going to be totally consumed, but not in such a way as to destroy the root of the tree, which is the root of Jesse, and that root is always green. That root is always alive. John the Baptist, if you're familiar with his message, actually uses this same metaphor, telling the people of Israel that every branch which doesn't produce fruit is cut away, and it's taken and burned up in the, in the fire. And so John the Baptist says that at this time, the root is laid, uh, the, the ax is laid at the root, as in everything that doesn't bear fruit, except the root's going to be cut away. And this is exactly what God does through the ministry of John the Baptist and the ministry of Christ. It's one of Christ's chief goals in coming. In all of God's judgments and all of the things that he brings against Israel, because of her unfaithfulness, he still will remain faithful. It's kind of like if you get in a bet and one person doesn't pay you, right? Uh, you know, they, they try to do a double or nothing or they avoid you. Uh, then they don't pay you. But the next time you make the bet, you actually pay up, Right? Or it's like if you own a property and the landlord doesn't take care of the property, you still pay your rent until you get the circumstance straight, straight away. Uh, this is what Yahweh is doing. He's keeping his end of the bargain. He gave Israel a law and he said, obey these laws. And he gave them promises and he said, use these and keep these promises. These are going to be your special treasure as my nation. And yet they avoid his law and they become ignorant of his great deeds and promises. And so he maintains, I'm still going to keep my faithfulness intact, even though they turn away. So this fire which comes is a means of God's faithfulness. The fire that Malachi foretells reminds us of a covenant, actually, that he makes with Abraham. If you go back to Genesis 15 and you look at how Yahweh encounters Abraham, he causes Abraham to go to sleep, and then the beast which is there on the table or on the altar, Yahweh then comes and moves like a fire through that animal. And this is just poetic language for us to see that Malachi is saying the same thing is going to happen. There's going to be a darkness which covers over Israel. She's going to be cut in two and a fire is going to pass through her. And then in verse three, it says the son of righteousness will rise. This imagery is that Israel's sin is so deep and so dark that she must die in a sense. And yet, as we're going to see, it is actually Yahweh himself who takes the death for her. Malachi 4 verses 1 and 2, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Stubble is not just that stuff on your face, men, if you are not growing your beard. Um, it's also the stuff that's left behind. It's the chaff. It's, it's little bits of bark and wood that isn't useful for anything. Uh, and he's going to burn it away. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. Nothing that is unproductive in Israel will remain. God's cleansing will be sure. It will be perfect. And that's actually, understanding the metaphor the right way, that's actually a great thing. If there are issues in your life in which remain between you and God, the worst thing that could happen is for God to tolerate them in your life. And so God is jealous for his people and he's jealous for us. The son of righteousness, sorry, verse two, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stalls. And so this one who is the son of righteousness, who is going to rise on the nation is going to be bringing forth the word of God, which makes the calf to bear. Uh, here, uh, the, 
the imagery is not just a fire, but also one with words. God will keep his covenant, and he's going to invigorate these people with his fire. The fire has two effects, invigoration of those who are faithful and utter complete judgment on those who remain unfaithful and remain opposed to becoming faithful. In God's campaign, he's going to work through another agent that is another Elijah. And here we see the message very clearly if we remember what happens in First uh, Kings. Verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Mo- probably most of you, when you read this verse, you think that this is talking about the second coming of Christ. This is talking about the first coming of Christ. There is one who comes, and we're going to see how that's explicitly clear. Verse 6, And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter desolation. We know that actually happens from history, although to get into that will take us too far afield. The first Elijah calls down fire, which consumes the prophets of Baal. Quick review for the story, if you don't know, uh, Elijah is a prophet. And at this point in the nation, he believes that he is the only prophet who's remained faithful to Yahweh. All the other priests and prophets, those who were leaders of Israel in a spiritual capacity, they had gone after this god called Baal. And Baal was a false god. It was We know that there is only one true god, and all other gods or supposed gods are no gods at all, but rather just the forces of evil. And Israel be- becomes corrupted. She begins to worship this god named Baal. If you were here in the first part of today's service in the Sunday school hour, you heard a little bit about the fertility cults that were engaged with and, and surrounded these various gods. And Baal was essentially a god which Israel looked to to provide blessing on their crops. So no famine, uh, no lack of rain, no pestilence. And yet we've seen how Israel herself learned that it's in Yahweh's hand to bring blessing or curse. And so they go after this god, they forget who Yahweh is, they ignore him, and they go after this god named Baal. And at this point, God wishes to purify the people. He raises up a prophet Elijah, he works with Elijah for very many years, and there is a confrontation. This is a battle that is uh, excellent. It's wonderful. Uh, If you don't remember the story really quickly, Baal, uh, the Baal worshippers set up an altar, and Elijah sets up an altar. And Elijah actually uses uh, wood and then digs a moat around his altar. And then he begins to take water and starts dumping it on the wood, right? I don't know about you. If I was going to challenge and call down fire from heaven, I would kind of, I would use dry wood and a lot of newspaper and cardboard and maybe some lighter fluid. Uh, Elijah takes water and dumps it on the sacrifice. He dumps it on the wood, he dumps it, he fills the moat full of water, and then he begins to issue this decree and challenge to the prophets of Baal. And he says, call down fire from your gods. Are your gods listening? And then there's a a lot of really wonderful mockery that, that Elijah engages in. The point is to show that there is no god named Baal. And that Baal is a false god and no god at all. And so Elijah then calls down fire. Fire comes down from heaven, and it consumes not only the wood, not only the stone, which is means it's a very hot fire, but also the water. It says it licks up the water out of the moat. This is an intense fire. If you've ever been in a chemistry class, you know how much thermal energy is required to remove water out of a boiling pot. It's a lot. 
I don't know the term. Maybe Sydney can tell us later, but it's a lot. Yahweh sends a fire that consumes the stone and the wood and the water, and it leaves nothing. And so all of Israel is watching, and he then issues the decree to round up all the prophets of Baal and kill them because they were perverting Israel from her original intention, which was devotion to Yahweh, to be an example of his righteousness and love to the nations around them. And so this new Elijah is going to prepare the land for another sacrifice. This is what it means for John the Baptist to be the one who walks in the spirit and power of Elijah. He is going to call the nation to repentance, a repentance which is leveled at the root of the tree. And so he's preparing this people for another sacrifice, but this sacrifice is not a goat, a beast, a lamb, or a bull, but rather it is Jesus Christ, as we will see. So that's Malachi's prophecy, and then a whole bunch of time passes, and then Luke writes his gospel. So Luke is writing to a person named Theophilus. Uh, I I love that uh, address that he gives, oh, most excellent Theophilus. It's kind of like a right out of Bill and Ted's, oh, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, He's essentially a governor. He's probably someone who is uh, a Roman governor over a particular region of land, and probably that land uh, was impacted by the gospel. Now, that's some context that we don't have completely, but it makes sense understanding possibly who Theophilus was and why he would have become a Christian or become acquainted with the things of the faith. And as we mentioned before, Theophilus has received the basic aspects of the faith. He understands Christ's coming, the the prophecies concerning his birth, his mission, what he did in his ministry, his death on the cross, his resurrection, and his commissioning of his followers. And so Luke's desire, as he receives a commission from Theophilus, is to make an account that is thorough and perfect. It's not a work of fiction, although it is a narrative. This is our exact same goal. Verse 3, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely from some, for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, an orderly account, that you may be certain, uh, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. Though Luke's gospel is a narrative, it is not fiction. A narrative simply means that the author has omitted things that are not necessary for his intended purpose at that point in the story, and also included or re-emphasized or highlighted some things that he wishes to uh, convey. That is, the significance of this moment is more meaningful than that moment, and so I may not include that moment, and I may use you know, beautiful language, flourishing words, references from the Old Covenant to emphasize the intent of this portion. So though it is a narrative, it is not fiction, right? Uh, Lord of the Rings is fiction, and it's a narrative. But Luke is a narrative that is not fiction, right? Uh, Not all rectangles are squares, but all squares are rectangles. And uh, I can see many of you are glazing over, so (laughs) geometry... Um, it's, it's important. Luke is entrusted with a task, right? He is a, at this point, we know Luke is a physician. Uh, we have enough that a context. We don't fully know where Luke was born or where he came from. Luke is a physician and he is a learned man. Physicians of that day and still to this day are very educated. 
They're people who spend time in school. They discuss wisdom, philosophy, literature. They have to read. And because they are readers and they have read a lot, they by default make good writers. And so Luke is seeing himself as entrusted with this commission to produce an orderly account that is a narrative and also faithfully conveys or communicates those things which are necessary to understand, to have certainty in the faith. Luke's goal is that there would be a production or a cause and effect in Theophilus, in this, in this reader of his gospel. Now, God saw fit that this would be uh, worthy of our uh, reading, and so we have a copy of it, but you have to see Luke's goal is historical accuracy, and emphasizing certain things which Theophilus needs to hear in order for him to mature as a believer. Being a historical account, we again see the importance of God's promises. Earlier I said God made real promises to real people, and we see this in the opening lines of Luke's writing. In the very first line after his introduction, he lays out the who, what, when, where, and somewhat the why. In the days of Herod, that's the when. King of Judea, that's the where. There was a priest, that's the who, named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. It's amazing to me how many people, especially, well, Christians, how many Christians uh, don't understand the purpose of the book of Numbers, and yet they can quote every stat from the NFL, NBA, NCAA, and, and other sports. The point is here, this long flowery uh, exposition of who Zechariah and Elizabeth were is God's way of saying, I'm faithful to the tribe of the Levites and the priests of Aaron. I am faithful to the people of Israel by naming the time, the place, and the who and where they came from. God is intending by the hand of Luke to show he is being faithful to the people he made promises to. Verse 6, And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. If you're a student of Scripture, this is God's pattern over and over again. He, by his own sovereign grace, makes and fulfills promises, and he works through those who he has preserved for himself. Zechariah and Elizabeth are faithful to Yahweh because of his preservation of them in the midst of a, a generation that had become adulterated, it had become perverted. And so Yahweh is making a promise to these people as a way of fulfilling the promises made before. Luke sets the context for God's new action in Israel as being done in Israel, with Israelites. This is not just joy to the world in an abstract sense, Christ coming un. Uh, unhitched or, or detached from a real people. As always, God works through his faithful remnant. Zechariah, though they're faithful themselves, represent Israel in their barrenness. And this is a pattern we see over and over again in Scripture. Israel shows by her deeds that she cannot produce children, that is, spiritual children, apart from God's preservation. This is what happens throughout all the covenant promises. The pattern's repeated over and over again. Eve, Sarah, Manoah's wife, that is the mother of Samson, Hannah, Naomi, and Ruth. How, how do I throw Eve and Naomi and Ruth in there? Naomi had children, and Ruth had a husband, but her husband was dead. 
and yet she is given a new husband, and she actually becomes part of the lineage of Christ. Same thing with Eve. Eve had two children. One of them actually turned out to be a son of the devil. His name is Cain, who killed Abel, meaning that she had no child any longer. And then God gives her a promise, and she has Seth. And so this is God's pattern, bringing a child where there's no possibility for a child. And here, this is a sign or a picture of the moral vacuum that exists in his people. Just as he gives the children to Abraham and Sarah, so also he brings a child to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God's intention is manifold, not just to show that Israel cannot bear children without him, but also to show that every child does come from him. And so even in the midst of an ethic, or in the midst of a narrative concerning the promise, we begin to see an ethic formed that is a moral which we should learn and know, that children are a gift from God, and because they're a gift from God, they belong to God. And so Zechariah and Elizabeth are receiving something. Because they bear the image, of the, God, uh, the image of God, he desires that they would live unto him and glorify him. Now, John the Baptist does have a specific calling, but it's in the larger context of children coming from Yahweh and therefore belonging to and accountable to him. Verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, we're going to jump to the kind of the end of the story, then we're going to come back to John the Baptist in a minute. How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years. If you young people have never taken an anatomy class, uh, women, when they get older, can't have children anymore. Um, some of you probably don't know that. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. This is intense. He's like, I'm Gabriel. Who are you? <laughs> I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. I think it's important to see that John the Baptist is a person given with the command of a verbal proclamation of the need for righteousness and faith. And so the angel shuts Zechariah's mouth because he's faithless. Even though he's righteous, it says, and, and Luke doesn't take any exception. Luke says, Zechariah and Elizabeth were both blameless in their upholding of the law. And yet at this very point, Zechariah and Elizabeth's role is to show us of our need for Yahweh. We need faith in order to believe God. Just as Abraham and Sarah at first unbe were unbelieving, then repented, so also Zechariah and Elizabeth do. Now, at this point, it doesn't say that Elizabeth was unbelieving, but at least Zechariah was. And it may have come as a surprise to her. Um, even though Zechariah is blameless, his unbelief shows us that we need grace from God to even believe God. Some people hear the gospel and they say, uh, in, at the end of the presentation of the gospel, they're told, if you would simply repent and believe, then you would be able to trust in Christ and have peace with God. But it's actually the case that you need God to believe God. You need God's grace and mercy to even respond to him in faith. And this is exactly what Zechariah is pointing to. So John the Baptist, again, is a special child. All children being given from God, they all have callings. But John the Baptist's specific calling is that he is going to announce the preparation of this person. That is the Lord himself. Verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. 
and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedience of the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist's specific mission is to prepare the way of the Lord. And it says that he's going to go before him. That is, Gabriel is not saying in some general way that Yahweh himself is coming, but rather that Yahweh will come in the flesh, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, with us. And John the Baptist has a specific goal to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. He is a living fulfillment of the promise that Israel received through Malachi. Malachi said there will come one who is in the spirit and the power of Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And then Luke says that Gabriel told Zechariah that John the Baptist was the one who walks in the spirit and power of Elijah. And so John the Baptist comes before the day of the Lord. Well, what is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is the day of his appearing on Israel that is, the life, ministry, death, and prophecies of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes to bring that same fire that Malachi speaks of in the same chapter. John the Baptist is calling down fire, and then Jesus will actually bring it. Zechariah has joy in John's birth, but all of Israel will as well, because he's going to be prophet of the Most High. John the Baptist is preparing a people for the Lord. He will be a harbinger, that is, one who announces victory beforehand, a harbinger of light, that is, light breaking in on the world, will be told of by John the Baptist. Even though John the Baptist was not preaching before Christ's birth, we still understand that his preaching before the beginning of Christ's public ministry was of prime importance. John the Baptist is making ready the people for an encounter with God. John the Baptist goes before him, that is the Christ, and that calling to prepare the people is both glorious, that is, it's, it's beautiful, it's amazing that God is doing this, and yet at the same time it's an indictment against us. Because what the, the angel is saying is we need to be ready. If Yahweh should just show up in front of Israel at this moment, then she would be, the judgment would be prime, and she would be, uh, she would be ready to receive judgment. But here, the people have to be prepared in order to even come before the Lord. That's why we take this time in Advent to remember and to repent from sins that we knowingly commit, those things in which we have broken faith with our God, those areas of life where we've become disheartened and downtrodden, and we, and we choose to turn those over to the Lord and look forward to the light of his inbreaking, which we celebrate in Christmas. This is part of the aspect John the Baptist's ministry is part of what it means to celebrate Advent faithfully. For the Lord to come before us, we must be made ready. And again, we, being the people of God, the continuation of true faithful Israel, we know that we both get blessings, right? You inherit good things from your parents, character, faith, DNA, but you also inherit bad things. We have to do the same thing that Israel needed to do, repent and then Christ will shine on us. We have wandered from the Lord and need to be called back to him. That's what John the Baptist's calling says to us. So this fire that Malachi speaks of, the one that John the Baptist says is coming through Christ, is a central aspect of the mission of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not come to this earth merely to die on the cross, but he also came to bring a fire. 
And this is the same fire that Malachi talks about. Even as you draw near to the birth of Christ in the calendar, that is, as we draw near to re-celebrate or to remember the birth of Christ, you have to see that this is part of Christ's coming in Christmas. And the reason why will become very clear in a second. It's good that Christ wants to bring a fire, as we've kind of mentioned but are going to look at. You must not understand the declaration in Luke 2:14 that the angels give to the shepherds peace on earth with those whom he is well pleased. Most people have completely hijacked that idea, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and they never include with those whom he is well pleased. They just mean it, Jesus Christ is like the United Nations in a person. And the, and he's going to be peace and the the age of his coming will be just golden and fine and everything's going to be okay. And this is important because if you're a serious Christian and you have any understanding of history, after Christ's coming, there's nothing like peace. There's just wars for, I mean, even in this century alone, well, the the previous one now that we're, I'm, I'm kind of thinking in the nineties occasionally, uh, world war (laughs) one, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, only in this country, the wars that we've been involved in, then the desert operations, desert, what was it, desert storm, and then desert freedom or whatever, desert eagle, something. Even, even in the last few years, there have been nothing but wars on the planet. And so if you think that Christ came to bring peace on the earth in a general abstract ending of wars idea, you're going to be solely disheartened. You're going to think that Christ failed at his mission. Unless you begin to see that Christ said he does not uh, come to bring peace that way. And this is the very same idea. It's a continuous thread. It's not two or three distinct ideas connected here through magic. It's intentional. Jesus uses the very same words and the very same terms and ideas to talk about what his mission is. He says himself that he's going to bring the fire that Malachi speaks of. In Luke 12, the very same author of the same gospel, Luke wrote Luke 2 and Luke 12, Jesus said, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Think about the severity of these words. Jesus is saying, I come to bring a fire on the earth. Have you ever seen what happens in a fire? Next time there's a fire in the neighborhood, park your car, get out and, and look. Not, don't watch. But if it's already burnt down, look at what's left of the house. Nothing, usually. Unless they put it out quickly, almost nothing. Maybe some siding. I've actually seen aluminum siding melt before my eyes. It's terrifying. Fire leaves nothing behind that can be consumed. Verse 51, do you think that I have come to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Put that on a little happy picture of Jesus. Throw it up on Instagram. You won't get any retweets. Verse 52, from now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. Now, I don't think there's any meaningful understanding of the three versus two. The the main point is those who believe versus those who do not believe. Verse 53, they will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and her daughter-in-law against the mother-in-law. This is Jesus's very 
thorough way of saying the division that I bring is total and it divides down the line of every man, every family, indeed every heart. He is going to bring a sword and a fire. And that's what John the Baptist says Jesus is going to do. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with a fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he is ready to take the chaff and throw it into an unquenchable fire. And those who are not chaff, he will preserve to the uttermost. So the question is, we've just heard Luke in Luke 2.52, the, the, uh, or not 2.52, 2.14, I think. Uh, the angels say that there's peace on earth with those whom he's pleased. And Malachi 4 said that the one who comes in the spirit and power of Elijah will be, come, will be coming to turn the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. And now we hear Jesus say, I didn't come to bring peace, but rather a sword. And I wish that the fire that I'm bringing on the earth were already here. So what is it? Is Luke talking out of both sides of his mouth? That's a phrase if you've never, it means to say one thing to one person and then, no, he's not, not at all. And in fact, if we understand the imagery rightly, this is part of, we see that this is part of Jesus's central mission. It's not a side aspect of why he came at Christmas. The question that we have to ask are, is, was John the Baptist successful? Did he actually turn the fathers to the children or the children to the fathers? Or is what Christ doing dividing the families? And here we have to say, Luke is not talking out of both sides of his mouth, but rather there is a very helpful equivocation. The reason why it's helpful is because we have to take time to look at it. We have to take time to examine what's here. And we see that there is no peace between those who are under the Prince of Peace and those who despise and will reject his rule. Christ comes and he says, I come to bring a sword. And that sword which goes down the line of every man, woman, child, indeed every heart, even yours, which divides, divides from those things which will be faithful to Yahweh and which will not be faithful to Yahweh. And so the fire which comes is not just a judgment, but also a blessing, as we've mentioned earlier. But here we're going to see how Christ comes to bring this fire which burns up all that hinders his rule. That's great news if you wish to love God. If you wish to love God and you have things in your life which you cannot overcome, as most certainly I know all of you do, then you will take great joy that Jesus says, I come to bring a fire on the earth. And this fire that he comes to bring is part of his original mission in coming at Christmas, which is to bear the first blow. Though Christ longs to gather up all of the people of Israel, Israel will, at this point in the story, it hasn't happened yet, so I use that will, will reject him. Jesus wishes to bring peace, and yet Israel doesn't want that peace. They wish to remain divided. They wish to continue to follow after their own will. And so the fire which Christ comes to bring both purifies and it judges. And those who believe the fire removes all that remains which is hindered against his rule. And for those who disbelieve, they are burned up completely, as, as John the Baptist said. But here's where this fire meets up with Christ's original purpose for coming. Christ, knowing that he's going to bring a fire on the whole earth, that is, all of the people of Israel, and indeed that fire spreading to all of the nations, he knows that he himself will take the first blow. That's why he says, I come to bring a fire, right after saying, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and I wish that it were already here. 
I'm in anguish until it comes. The cross upon which Christ dies is the very kindling for the fire which comes. And in this imagery, it's made plain. Just as Elijah stacked wood and then dug a moat and filled it with water and poured water on the wood, so also Christ is crucified on a cross of wood. This sacrifice which goes up is a pleasing aroma to Yahweh and fulfills the great need for the atonement. The very deep and dark sins of the people of Israel are finally satisfied in Christ. And that fire which comes and comes on the sacrifice, that fire which Elijah did and John the Baptist speaks of, that fire purifies all the people of God. We see that fire at Pentecost, but it's Advent, not Pentecost. So, figuratively speaking, the wrath of God which is poured upon Christ for the atonement of the people is an unquenchable fire. And yet, the beauty of the gospel is that Christ in dying in your stead, in your place, has fully satisfied the wrath of God. That is why Christmas is precious. The reason that is precious is because that is something you could not survive, nor I. The sins and the things which I alone know that I've done in my life, not even knowing the secret thoughts and intentions of your heart, but knowing that you are a man or a woman in like nature to myself, I can testify to you I have done things which could never, I could never stand before God and hear, even the reading of them, let alone the punishment. And yet what Christ does in going to the cross is he takes upon the judgment for those sins for you. That's what Christians believe. And that is his central mission in coming in Christmas. Yes, Christmas is a time of glory. It's a time of great joy and festivity and celebration. And it's sometimes troubling for those who are somewhat living in a, you know, just kind of surface level celebration of Christmas to hear the weight of what's involved in learning how to celebrate Christmas rightly. But the reason it's joyous is because it's so serious. And the reason it's such a wonderful day is because it is a need that we all have. The baptism which he speaks of, he wants to receive both in anguish and joy. That is, Christ is anguishing, and yet Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross, despising the shame, knowing that he receives an inheritance in you and in me, in his church, in his people. That's why Christ goes to the cross, to purchase a people. In the coming season of Christmas, as we prepare for it, you must see the ultimate reason for Christmas joy. The penultimate, or that is the, the, the surface level reason, is just that what Christ did in coming was really awesome. But if you look at why it's awesome, why it's amazing, you see these heavy, weighty, life and death, heaven and hell, eternity with God or eternity without God, reasons for why he came. And it's not just heaven or hell, it's also a redeemed humanity. It's a people who can live in harmony with one another. And none of that was possible before Christ comes. And we have to see Christ coming as the fulfillment of God's promises. Christmas is joyful because in coming to the earth, Christ comes to remove all that stands against him, both in our hearts and in the world. The reason that you celebrate Christmas is because it's a gift. God gives a gift to his people, and through his people, Israel, the redeemed church, he gives that gift to the whole world. That is, those who are worshipers of Yahweh begin to draw in others. Those hear the gospel and are redeemed. 
But the gift that God gives when he gives it at Christmas in giving Christ to be handed over to suffer and die in your place at the hands of wicked and evil men is not a gift like the gift that you and I give. I received a wonderful gift. Just to add a little humor to the scenario, my in-laws, which I went to see at Thanksgiving, gave us a bunch of Christmas gifts, and they wanted us to open one of them each. And so they hand me a little bag, and I remove the paper, and uh, in there is a Blu-ray and DVD set of Star Wars episodes 4, 5, and 6. Hallelujah! (laughs) But that wasn't a necessary gift. That's just a gift I think is really cool. The reason we give gifts at Christmas is to remind ourselves, to remind each other that a little, through a little token of love, appreciation, and hopefully a little effort of the great gift that God gave us. But those gifts which you give and receive are not gifts you need. Usually, unless you're in dire straits, they're usually fun things, toys for kids, clothing for non-kids, or clothing for kids. I mean, mostly I just want new socks and undershirts and things like that. I, I want gifts that I don't need, right? Those gifts, gifts are things that are surface level. But the reason why we do that is to remember that there was a gift that God gave, but it was a gift that we needed. It was logically necessary that Christ come because there was something that you or I could not do, and that is to remove those things which hinder his rule. And that is the thing which he brings when he brings the fire on the earth, which John the Baptist spoke of and Malachi spoke of, and indeed God promised and then fulfilled. That's what we are seeking to see in Advent. So let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and we can barely scratch the surface. Lord, we have only heard the outskirts of the whispers of the greatness of your ways. God, we are so thankful that you've given us your word, and through time, through the faithfulness of your people, which you have caused alone, you have preserved your word for us to see and to hear and to to dwell in. God, I pray that you would begin to prepare our hearts for this upcoming season after Advent, that through this time of these next four weeks, we would begin to examine our lives for those things in our heart which are like stubble and chaff, which we need you to burn away. Lord, we know that your Holy Spirit is God, that he in us is able to burn away those things. Lord, we ask that you would do this in us. We know God, that we cannot even repent unless you give us the grace to respond in faith. That we can't even look at our hearts and see anything that needs removed. That it's actually a grace from you to see the sins in our lives and to then be moved to repent for them. Lord, we ask you that you would open our eyes, that we would see and take note of the darkness in our lives and yet eagerly anticipate your light which breaks in. We pray, Lord, that you would give us faith. And and for those who are still far away from you, Lord, I ask that you would hunt them down in love and give them, God, a wonderful sense of your mercy and grace and pardon, which come only through Jesus Christ and only at his cross. We pray, Lord, that we would have a Christmas this year and for all time that is integrated, that isn't disjoint from your purpose, but rather that it's knowingly holistic and well and true. 
We pray, Lord, that you would give us a rich and robust understanding of the promises which you fulfilled when you sent your son. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.